the daughter called 911 on her cell phone. She was very upset, as you could imagine. There's only a 9% chance that someone has out-of-hospital cardiac arrest will survive with good neurological outcome. From Boston 25 News, this is First on Scene, a podcast about the people who run toward danger, about those who become heroes in our darkest hour. Thanks for joining us for First on Scene, where we talk with the first responders who run to help when so many people are running away. We brought you a bunch of different episodes where the outcomes for first responders have truly been so unique. But there's a call we want to talk about here today that focuses on truly never giving up, never giving up on the patient. And joining me today here in our podcast studio here at Boston 25 News, Fire Chief Jen Collins-Brown, Firefighter John Boyle, and Dispatcher and Call Taker Greg Calderelli. Did I say it right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you all for being here today. I really do Thank appreciate you. it. And you might, they're all from the Topsfield Fire Department, and you may hear in the background three-year-old Jameson, right? That is right. And uh, So I? we appreciate you guys being here today. So we're here to talk about a call, and I talked about how this is a call about a patient never giving up on a patient, and that's truly what it's about. And I know it's been dubbed the Christmas miracle, and... We'll be getting into why it's called that. But, Greg, if you can kind of take me through what happened back in December. This all started with a medical incident initially. How did the call come into you? Uh, the, the daughter called 911 on her cell phone. We took the call. Um, she was very upset, as you could imagine. And uh, she was saying that her father was having a heart attack and uh, trying to get up the location of where she was. And obviously, because she was very upset, it was a little bit difficult. But to find out where she where he was and find out that he was in the middle of a park lot in, in the town of Topsfield and find out he was having a heart attack and she was stating that he was turning blue, so we had to possibly start CPR, but was, from that point was just finding the location first and then going forward with procedure. I know that in your line of work, you've heard it all. Yeah. Like, how long have you been doing this? Uh, almost six years, five okay. and a half years. So when you hear that it's a potential, potential CPR mm-hmm. incident, what goes through your mind? What goes through your I mean, heart? I mean, you have to be able to control what you're, what you're thinking. But the most important part is just to follow procedure and know what to be able to give the proper CPR instructions to the caller, to try and control their emotions, and keep them calm, and so they can provide the help to the person that needs it. So. You're in a unique spot because you're, as the chief was saying, telling me earlier, you're the call taker and the dispatcher. Yes. So you're doing everything. You're very busy. Yes. How hard is that? Uh, I mean, it can be a lot. It can be a lot, but that's what you train for. That's part of the job is to be able to take the call and be able to dispatch the fire department, talk on the radio, multitask, all of it. So what would you do in this situation? So I took the call. And like we were speaking earlier, but with Chief, it was a minute and 20 seconds? Yeah. Yeah, so from the time I picked up, answered the phone call, uh, to by the time they got there on scene, it was a minute and 20 seconds. But So I found out that he was having a heart attack, find out the age of the patient, all that kind of information, whether he was breathing or not. Uh, tone out the fire department and give them the location and just continue to ask questions and to find out if he is breathing or not and to see if we had to do CPR while the fire department is going to the scene. So at that point, let's bring in John Boyle, Firefighter John Boyle, because you were responding. Yes. Right. And this was a 69-year-old patient, is my understanding. Yes. So, John, you get the call, and as you're heading there, what do you know? So my partner and I were, we were coming back from another call, uh, and that's kind of what helped us out with our response time. We were already in the truck, so that eliminated at least 30, 45 seconds from our response time. 
as we were going there, we were getting possible heart attack. And then we got an update. I can't remember what it was exactly, but my partner looked at me and said, this is probably going to be a code. We're going to have to do CPR. And sure enough, as soon as we turned into the parking lot, we got called that CPR was in progress. When we did get there, uh, the patient was being held by two workers that were on site that day. They weren't doing CPR and the patient was blue in the face. So I just had the workers step away and I started CPR immediately while my partner went and grabbed the equipment that we use, such as our cardiac monitor and the uh, Lucas, so that we could go further with interventions. But when I got there, you could tell he was not breathing, checked for a quick pulse, and there wasn't anything, so I just started CPR. How optimistic were you at this point? It's very rare that we have an outcome like we did. Um, started CPR and probably within 10, 20 seconds, he started getting color back in his face. So, you know, the blood was circulating, which was good. And we had a relatively short downtime because we were able to respond so fast. So that definitely helps out with the final outcome. When we got him on the monitor, we saw what heart rhythm he was in. We were able to shock him and we got pulses back right away, which is pretty incredible. But that wasn't the end of the call. Right? No, it uh, continued from there. So after we shocked him, we got him hooked up to the Lucas, which frees our, frees our uh, responders up because that will do automatic compressions. So after that, we were able to get him on the monitor, get him backboarded into the truck. While we were doing that, he lost pulses again. So once we were in the truck, we had to shock him again. We got pulses back again with that, which in itself is incredible. And then that happened once more on the ride to the hospital. And by the time we got to the hospital, he was breathing on his own and he had a heart rate. But before that, three times. Yes, we shocked him three times. How unique is that? It's not unheard of. It's very rare that you get pulses back all three times and that you keep pulses. When, when you're going through this and when you're doing this, what is the adrenaline, adrenaline like for you? Like Greg was saying, you got to kind of keep it in check and just revert to your training. Because we practice it so much, we drill on it so much, you know, this is the big one that we train for and it just saw him to come this day. So in the moment, fall back to your training, hopefully, which is what happened. How often do you handle a cardiac arrest call? You think this was my first one with the department? Really? Yeah. So they're not as common anymore in the field. Um, I'd say more prevalent in the hospital, but since I've been with the department, we've probably handled maybe four or five. And this is the first one where I was first on scene. So, when you got to the hospital, you give the doctors and nurses and the staff there the update. Yep. What did they say? Well, you'd have to talk to the chief because <laughs> she's the one that gave the report. Chief, you arrived. Tell me when you came into the call. Like um, right, I was there. right behind them, um, in, and I came in a separate car. Um, I was at town hall, which is in between the fire station and the location of where the call was. And I was leaving a selectman's meeting, which uh, a lot a lot of my work is advocacy for the fire department and the residents of the town of Topsfield to provide the best services that we can. In that particular selectman's meeting, our um, backup ambulance had rotted um, to the point where it was being, it was taken out of service. And I was in the selectman's meeting advocating for um, us to get a loaner to buy the time until we could get another replacement for that truck. And in that, there's certain select people that... Um, have questions and questions about the service we provide and why do we provide that service and is it worth it and so I had just I had literally walked out of that meeting where I had been kind of um, a little bit heated but in discussing sure. why it's important that we have 
this service and the backup to that service. So um, uh, when I got there, um, they had just um, straightened the patient out and they were starting compressions. And I'm lucky enough that um, John and his partner, Tom, who has since retired, um, are both paramedics and able to perform all the skills necessary. So I can take a little step back and take the whole scene in and um, help get the equipment that they needed. And also one of the police officers that arrived is in his other job, a firefighter. So he has some background in training in, um, he was able to give oxygen to the patient. Um, so when you heard what was happening on the way to the hospital. I was there. Oh, oh sorry, I was with them. In the, so what'd you think? Um, you, I was very was pessimistic because um, uh, there's only a 9% chance that someone has out-of-hospital ca cardiac arrest will survive with good neurological outcome. That's what the American Heart Association has found. Right. So right off the bat, we're, we have everything against us. And the, in the, this man was um, in the process. He was really agitated because he was jump-starting his truck. He couldn't get his truck to run. And so my first thought was the safety of everyone was I, I wondered if there was an electrical problem um, with, the, hmm. with the, him jump-starting the truck. But that wasn't the case at all. They weren't doing that at that time. Um, so I think about the safety of that, but then the the, the real reason is why did he, why is he in that situation and trying to troubleshoot all the reasons that could be, um, you know, whether it's it's something that we can fix, whether it's his sugar or an overdose or anything like that, or something like electrolytes or um, a heart attack that needs to go to the cath lab, um, like all, all we're trying to troubleshoot all those things. And in, in addition to keeping in mind the algorithms from um, our training is what we have to follow state treatment protocols the right medications to give at the right time for the right rhythms in his cardiac um, process so those are kind of that's all going on at the same time um, and so the fact that he would arrest his heart would stop three times right. um, the the third after the third time we we're able to give amiodarone which is a, um, a medicine basically that helps uh, soothe the irritation in the heart if that's a really simple term for it and after he was given the amiodarone, he did, his heart did not stop again. So that definitely helped at that point. Um, and so the big puzzle when you get to the hospital is why? Why is this happening to this man? Why did he arrest? And he had really good um, indications. Even when we got to the hospital, he was trying to spit out the airway and things like that, that he was doing purposeful motion even at that time. They actually had to sedate him so he would stop um, trying to fight and so that they could try to figure out what was wrong. So that's really what the work is then is around is, because we did do a 12 lead EKG, which didn't wasn't evidence. It didn't show that he was having a heart attack at that time. Um, there's other ways you can see it, like Keeney's labs right. drawn and stuff like that. And um, but that's the main work is to try to figure out the situation that he was in, what you've done, and how he responded, and what that what is the reason that he's in that situation. So, what was the feedback you got from the medical staff when you got um, there and you told them what had happened? The, uh, well, the other part of it was that his um, stepdaughter um, is a staff person at the hospital that we oh, arrived at. So um, actually his daughter had left the scene, the one that Greg was talking to on the phone, left the scene very quickly. We didn't know the man's name. We didn't know any of his medical history. She, she had a small child with her. She left to go to the hospital before we even really got to talk to her, which made it a little hard because we didn't know anything about the man. And also when he started to wake up a little bit, he was very agitated. He was... Um, scared i'm sure confused and scared and um it would have been it would have been great to know his name so that we could have reassured him more but we, we try to reassure him and try to keep him calm the whole time um obviously to bring in a cardiac arrest that is like i said there's only a nine percent chance out of hospital that they're going to survive with good neurological outcome 
is something. But now he's a family member of their team. So that kind of brings everything sure. else. And they knew that coming in. Um, so that, you know, sort of brings a heightened sense to everything that's happening there. So, um, you know, there's not like a time for a good, good job. That's right. not what you say. You right. kind of say, this is what we did. This is the response. And here's where we're at. This is what we found. Isn't We know that he's not by 12 lead having an, a heart attack. Um, his sugar's okay. Like all the things that we can check, we've checked, and that's not the problem. So, so. When, when you all leave the hospital at that point, and what? whether you go back yeah. to the, the truck, the fire station, wherever, when you're kind of just taking a moment to breathe <laughs> after all of this high intensity, high stress quickly, what do you say to each other? Well, we try to we try to talk about everything that we do because we can always do better. Um, that call went really well. We have another ambulance company that comes into town, and they have a, they came with a paramedic. He came with us in the truck, so we had plenty of help. Uh, kind of everything aligned as far as the right place, the right time, the right equipment, the right people, and everything like that. And um, we all talk about what we could have done better or worse, and uh, or not done. Um, and then uh, we try. There's a lot of equipment you got to put back together. And uh, depending on the call, you know, sometimes we try to touch base about, you know, how do, how do you, are you okay? If we know someone's the first time they've done CPR on a person or the first time they've seen a dead person, if we have new staff, sure. we try to try to kind of talk about sure. that. You, um, you all have recently seen this man. He's yes. visited you all at the firehouse, right? Yes. Yep. What was that like? That was cool. It was really cool. It was good to see him at least, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, what is that like to see a, a patient, you know, that reunion like that when you've been in battle at work trying to save this person and you're not looking at them, I, I imagine, as, as their personality, but you're just trying to save them. Yeah. And then when you see someone and you talk to them, what's, what was that like? It's somewhat amazing because, like the chief was saying, you know how rare it is to have somebody come back almost 100% and he came back, no neuro deficits, anything like that. And he was doing really well. So it's also very rewarding because the amount of time that we put into our job to be able to be ready for situations like what came up, it's very time intensive. And to see somebody that rebounded the way they did, it, it's definitely very rewarding. What do you remember about what he said to you? When he came to the station? Yeah. Well, he got on his tippy toes and gave me a big hug. And that's <laughs> the main thing that I remember. Was the, that was the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> kind of caught me off guard. But, um, no, he was very appreciative, and he had his daughter and stepdaughter there with him, and they were very appreciative as well. So, like I said, it's just very rewarding. Greg, did you uh, get a chance to meet him? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, since I work at a regional center, Topsfield's not the only community that we dispatch for. We're at a separate building, not in Topsfield, so I wasn't able to meet him unfortunately. But, but to hear how he's doing now oh that's great that's great Let's see how come you want chief you were saying when you when you saw him that was pretty cool it was we um it's funny because um, i've actually been really fortunate to be involved in several cases where um the outcome was great like this and i always wonder if you were given a second chance what would you do differently mm. and um <coughs> excuse me he um I asked him that. I said, you know, what are you going to do differently? How are you going to live your life differently yeah. now that you've been given a second chance? And he said, geez, I think I'm a pretty good guy. I don't know. I don't know. Do anything different, which is, which is fine. I'm good. Um, but he really is a miracle. He's uh, an, a very unusual occurrence. 
um, I think it speaks to the point um, we talk about all the time, the importance of um, bystander CPR, of people recognizing that they're seeing a problem and calling for help so the right resources can de get dispatched. Um, and I think that we'll see more and more of this as uh, layperson CPR becomes more uh, prevalent as you see more and more defibrillators because that's really what you need. Um, and people are more aware. I think that, you know, I, I think we're going to see more and more out of hospital cardiac arrest survival. So timing makes a difference, and uh, it's everything in saving the brain tissue. And, um, you know, yeah. it, it worked out perfectly for him. Are you guys surprised that it worked out this way yeah. in your gut? Yes, I am, yeah. Like yeah. if you were looking at this as a textbook <coughs> situation. Yeah, you know, we were fortunate in the way some of the things went. The fact that we were in the truck already and everything, there were a lot of things that helped play into the outcome. And I would definitely count that somewhat lucky, yeah. Chief, I want to go back to that issue of you were in a meeting with selectmen talking about the need for a better ambulance. Um, what What's happened since then? Um, did this did this call influence anything? Not not for the, the, the no, yes and no. Um, actually, I sent an email to the Board of Selectmen as we were riding home, and I, I, I was trying to think in my mind, I shouldn't probably send this because it's a really an emotional time right now, but then John said, "Oh, just send it." But what I what I what I just said in that was that as I left their meeting, we went to this call, and that because we had paramedics on scene with an ALS ambulance, and we were able to treat the patient, that this family was going to be really lucky and have a good outcome, and that is why I'll tirelessly continue to fight for the res the residents and visitors to Topsfield to do the right thing. And I know there's financial implications and things like that, but that's why we do what we do for so them to have that outcome. And um, so I, that's a pretty much, you know, there's just certain fraction factions in uh, government and uh, politics in local small sure. communities, and that will always be the argument. Um, but uh, it's what we do, and we know what we do. Sure. So, and we know the difference it can make. So, as far as the public component to this, because there were people around um, the CPR, knowing CPR. And you touched on this a little mm -hmm. earlier, but how important is that that people know it's, CPR? It's critically important. And uh, one of the things that was hard at that scene, which uh, John and Tom might not have seen as much of, but because I could step back a little bit, was it's an elderly or it's a uh, housing authority. So there's a lot of older right. people, a lot of people that really, this was their friend. So right. they all knew him. And the people uh, like, um, you know, in different, like in electric wheelchairs, there was people like kind of zipping around trying to help but not being able to help and being really frustrated so um it would have been great had those workers that were there you know laid them out and started to do compressions um but sometimes when it gets down to it people get really anxious but really you can't do any more harm than it's already being done by their heart stopping and so for people to become familiar with um the science behind um cpr has really uh, shown that hard Fast compressions are what help save people's life and have them have a good outcome in their in their brains and their kidneys and the rest of their body. So, um, as long as people can recognize that they need help and start compressions, and if there's an AED nearby, that's even better. But it's proven that it helps outcomes, so sure. it's really important. And we've we've seen it before. And the Lucas um, chest compressor, how how vital is that? Well, from my point of view, uh, for a couple of reasons, it's extremely vital. Now, from uh, from my point of view too, that was fundraised by for mm -hmm. by our association. That wasn't 
something that was something that our members felt really important that we have that. How expensive are those things? Um, they're sixteen thousand dollars. Wow. And um, but for another point of view, so they uh, American Heart Association shows us that we only people can only do good hard fast compressions for two minutes. So like when I started a long long time ago, the new person would be doing compressions from the bedroom down the stairs out the house into the ambulance all the way to the hospital. Same person doing the compressions. We we never save people then. And um, now we know that people can only do effective compressions for about two to three minutes. So that machine, whether it be that machine or a similar brand of a different manufacturer, um, provides a mechanical compression at the right depth, at the right time, without getting fatigued. And um, you can bring in someone that's really ill, um, who's been like really, really sick and passed away, and they're pink and warm because it perfuses their blood so well through their body. So... But the other thing is that it allows, like John said, it allows for people to do other things because the compressions are taken care of. But most importantly, it allows the rescuers to be seated and seatbelted in the back of the ambulance. So if you're doing compressions in the old days, we would stand up and you would hold on to the bar of the ambulance doing like one-handed mm. compressions. But now my staff can be seated and belted and they don't have to do that and put themselves at risk. So it has a number of benefits, that particular um that's just one particular brand of them, but those are the, the for me the things that I see that are really changer, important. Isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's it's really incredible. What I think is really truly amazing is the work you guys have done and how humble you guys are about it. I know it's what you guys do every single day and, and you could get one of these calls exactly here this afternoon. But this family will never forget you all and will never forget every Christmas how thankful they are to have their loved one around because of the work you guys did that day. So it's really incredible. And, and I know I know you guys are very humble about it. So thank you very much for what you all did. And thank you to so many people out there who do this every single day. Chief Collins Brown joining me, Firefighter John Boy, Boyle and Dispatcher and Call Taker Greg Calderelli. Thanks so much for being here. And three-year-old Jameson, thanks for hanging in there. <laughs> I think he was doing his best to be part of this, but uh, it was fun having him here. Thanks, you guys, for Thank being here Thank today. You. Thanks for what Thank you sir. do in our communities. We are so very thankful. And thanks for those who are out there listening. We'll see you next time for First on Scene. First on Scene is a production of Boston 25 News. It's hosted by me, Blair Miller. The show is produced and edited by Dalton Maine. Music is provided by Killer Tracks. Special thanks this episode to Chief Jen Collins-Brown, Firefighters John Boyle, and Dispatcher Greg Caldarelli. And thanks to those who wouldn't do anything differently. You can read more about these stories at boston25.com slash firstonscene. And please let us know what you think of the show. You can send an email to firstonscene at boston25.com, or you can rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>